Welcome to the World We Got This podcast, brought to you by King's College London. In this series, we take a look at the complex issues we face in the world today. We ask those researching and studying these fields about the scale of the challenge and ask them what society and each of us as individuals can do to help solve it. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Where We Got This in Conversation. You're about to listen to a conversation between PhD student Annabelle Shaw Mimo and Dr. Rashita Nandagiri, lecturer in global health and social medicine, bioethics, and society. Annabelle's research looks at the experiences of black British women accessing fertility control methods in the UK. In this episode, she explores how she first got into sexual reproductive health, often referred to as SRH in this episode, as well as more about her day job as a community sexual reproductive health registrar and the Reproductive Justice Initiative, which she founded and which looks at the colonial history of sexual reproductive health as well as how gender, class, economics, etc. shape poor reproductive health outcomes. She gives detail to reproductive justice, a term coined in the early 90s by black and women of colour working in reproductive health care in the US, and questions what shapes and enables women's rights to be fully enacted in a world where sexual reproductive health is politicised. She also talks about a piece called The Secret Lives of Britain's First Black Physicians, which she wrote for the Wellcome Collection, and about her great-great-grandfather, one of the first West African graduates of medicine in the UK. This is a jam-packed episode, so let's get on to what she has to say. I'm Rashita Nandagiri, and I'm super excited to speak with Dr. Annabelle Shawemimo today. Dr. Shawemimo is an SRH, a sexual reproductive health doctor here, a journalist, an activist, who founded the Decolonizing Contraception Collective and now called the Reproductive Justice Initiative. Annabelle is also a PhD researcher at the Global Health and Social Medicine Department here at KCL. Annabelle, welcome. Good morning. Thank you so much for speaking to me this morning and inviting me to be on this podcast. And um, yeah, that that introduction makes me sound so much busier. I only really appreciate it when people read it back to me. That covers all of the things that you do and have been involved in. You wear so many different hats. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and, and all of these different things that you do. So as I said, you did a really nice summary. Thank you. So um, I'm doing this podcast because I'm a part-time PhD student now at King's. And my research is linked to my day job, which is a community sexual reproductive health registrar. I'm based in Leicester and I'm towards the end of my training now. So I'm entering my sixth year of specialty training. And uh, my PhD focuses on the experiences of Black British women with fertility control methods. And yes, I'd really like to go into how I suppose I ended up researching that area. But in my day job, I'm doing contraception, miscarriage, abortion work, menopause, lots and lots of different um, aspects of sexual reproductive health care. And um, it was partly my own experiences, family's experiences and what I'd read about kind of the legacy of kind of contraception family planning that led me to research this area. And of course, um, a few years ago, I founded Decolonizing Contraception Collective and learned more about it there and then thought, um, yeah, need to need to go off and do more research on this because it's under-researched area. It really, really is quite under-researched and you think after however many decades and centuries, I guess, of, of thinking about it and 
valuing reproduction and everything around reproduction so much that we know a lot more about it than we actually do. But you mentioned all of the different experiences that brought you to sexual reproductive health. Can you say a little bit more about that? How come sexual reproductive health? Did you flirt with any other specialties or areas to work on or was it SRH from the start? No, I did. I did have a journey and uh, we don't have all day, so <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll speed it up. But um, I went to, I know, the rival institutions of my undergraduate at University College London. And I, during my medical education there, I think I always had a little bit of different interest compared to maybe other medical students. Um, I used to direct plays, do drama. I've always liked writing. Um, I did English on my A-levels and I intercalated because we have to take uh, an additional year if you're undergraduate there and you, you you haven't done a degree before. You have to do another kind of year out. And I did medical mm-hmm. anthropology. And I learned lots during that year about the history of medicine, um, interactions with medicine, other cultures, how we think about health in other cultures. And it just changed my perspective, really, on 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 healthcare. And I think I'd always been into specialties that I saw as more holistic, that deal with the medical. We're also looking at, you know, drug development and interventions and procedures. And I do do quite a, a, a fair amount of basic procedures in my day job. I do hysteroscopy, so that's camera tests in the womb and, um, you know, mm. do evacuation procedures. But I also wanted to think more about people's, you know, family structure, the social structure, what leads them into healthcare seeking healthcare and having poor health and some people having good health. So I did consider other specialties. I did a lot of paediatric A&E during my foundation year. So that's the two years after you graduate medical school. I was Mm -hmm. quite interested in paediatrics. I was quite interested in psychiatry. So definitely those specialties that deal more with the whole person, the whole family. But really what led me to SRH was a few different things, really. I think I was always interested in kind of the globalisation of healthcare and sexual reproductive health is one of those specialties where looking at global trends, global patterns, um, migration patterns is quite key. I am very into politics. I am really very up for a good debate. (laughs) And definitely SRH, given that incorporates abortion care and so many other areas, even sexual health in itself is very politicised. Sex education, very politicised. I was really keen to almost go into a specialty where I felt like I had something to offer that, you know, I could lend my voice, I could um, be an advocate for people. And I don't want that to sound, you know, really arrogant or mm-hmm. anything like <laughs> that. But I felt like, okay, I'm I'm happy to speak out. I'm happy. Um, I'm, I'm non-judgmental. And I don't mind if people judge me for what I speak out on. So I thought, yeah, sexual reproductive health it is and I went to do my master's at the London School of Tropical Medicine in sexual reproductive health research before I started my training program and yeah my um, experiences there and the things I was looking at really cemented for me that that's what I wanted to spend my my at least early career if not my rest of my days doing. That's fantastic. And I really love how you talk about sexual reproductive health and thinking about it holistically as linked to all these other concerns and how political it is. I think largely we talk about reproduction and sexual reproductive health more broadly and sexuality as such intimate private things, but so deeply public and political. And I'm really curious about how, as you say, that your zen for activism, your your commitment to this how all of this, along with your commitment to SRH and this politicization and tackling that politicization, how you came to found decolonizing contraception 
and now the Reproductive Justice Initiative. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that is, how you came to that, why is it important, and why now specifically for a Reproductive Justice Initiative? Yeah, thank you. So lots in there. So first of all, decolonizing contraception, um, which started as a collective about four or five years ago now, is now a reproductive justice initiative charity. We converted to a charity. We were a community interest group and now the type of non-profit. And the reason we were founded really was out of frustration. I was frustrated because actually I think people had started to lose sight of how politicised sexual reproductive health was. And particularly, I started looking at the issue of contraception and, you know, the individual's autonomy versus like the state trying to control what population looks like and limit people's um, family sizes and, and, and things like that. And I felt like a lot of my peers in the specialty really didn't know the history of the specialty they'd gone into and couldn't really look at the context of the system we have today and the policy we have today and make those connections about, you know, why the state is particularly interested in contraception provision aside from people's individual want to have children or not have children. So that's kind of where we started. But very early on, we were having much wider discussions about, as you touched upon, the individual's culture and background and how that shapes their sexual attitudes, behaviour, how if you are, you know, somebody that is racially marginalised or comes from a different cultural background, how your interaction with sexual reproductive health in this country may be a bit more challenging or you might not get the same sources of sex education that somebody in a different home gets and how that can shape your, your sexual attitudes and behaviours. Things that, you know, we've known for a really long time and people have researched, but I felt there were less informal conversations about it. So we started off having mm-hmm. conversations at different universities and um, SOAS, the, the School of Oriental and African Studies, mm-hmm. also based in uh, London, was fortunate enough to give us space for various discussions and they were open to the public. And we had several of these. And they were really well received. And from that, we started doing other work. Then we led to doing outreach work. And we've just grown over the last few years in the scope of things that we've done from partnerships with organisations and other charities to running outreach programmes to doing other bits of research. And so we thought that it was time to grow and to expand. And that's why we've turned into the Reproductive Justice Initiative. So we can really start um, not just focusing on, you know, the colonial history of sexual reproductive health and um, racial marginalisation, but looking at lots of different things that shape your poor sexual reproductive health outcomes, particularly looking at things like gender, class, um, and starting to think about how we can make a more even playing field, because there's a lot of disparities in our in our mm-hmm. sector. And to be honest, the disparities have not really improved when we think to uh, sexual health outcomes and even maternity outcomes, things like that. They've just been gaping holes for, for a while. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and these gaping holes, and I think as you point out so compellingly, is that it's not just a, an issue of overlooking or not enough resources, right? There's also the role of the state in this and what are the state's goals um, and how that's stratified along race, class, gender, and so on. Um, and this, I guess, brings me to the idea of reproductive justice. Could you say a little bit more about reproductive justice? What is it for people who've not engaged with that before? How is it different to other frames that are used, like choice or, you know, uh, healthcare? What is special and unique? about reproductive justice? 
Yes, so reproductive justice um, is a term that was coined in the early 90s by Black and women of colour working around um, reproductive health care in the United States. But they also had international partnerships, um, were looking at the issues of Indigenous people and felt that the current discussions, particularly around reproductive health and choice, was limiting. So they needed new kind of analysis to contextualise their own experiences. So often the idea was, you know, you could choose to have an abortion. And as long as we provided services where people could access abortion care, then people could have the right to not have or have an abortion. And um, that was limiting because um, it wasn't really incorporating all the other things that are going on in the world that mean that actually some people, they're not really choosing to have an abortion because they might not have the, the financial support and security. They may be worried about the different outcomes. Um, If they do have a child, obviously things like police Mm -hmm. brutality disproportionately affecting Black communities um, in the US and in other countries, such as England, (laughs) you have the data to show that that's quite similar across the UK. So these things govern people's choices and just saying that, well, you have a choice really limits the discussions that we're having about what really shapes people's sexual and reproductive health behaviours more widely. Um, So it means that you have to expand your analysis outwards, right? So you need to think not just about providing people the option, but what options you're providing them with and also the supporting people. For example, um, people can't get to clinic if they don't have the money to get to clinic. So it's all right saying that we gave you the option to attend, I don't know, antenatal classes. But if people can't get there, then they might as well not have put on the classes at all. And also, for example, if you do those antenatal classes in a certain neighbourhood and that certain neighbourhood has friction with another neighbourhood or there's gang violence, then people might not feel comfortable leaving that area to go to another area. And these are all the mm-hmm. things that govern people's choices. And, and obviously, I've used lots of different examples there, but you can use a reproductive justice framework in so many ways. So it's really mm-hmm. saying that, you know, we're thinking about not just people's rights to choose and not choose, but what shapes and enables those rights to kind of Mm -hmm. be enacted fully. And so that's resonated with lots of different groups of people Um, in the UK, although we never called it reproductive justice. We've had Mm -hmm. a a firm kind of reproductive justice movement um, for a long time. When we look at um, the work of OWAD, which only existed for a few years, but was very effective, the Organisation of Women of African and Asian Descent. Um, And they talked a lot about these issues and connected with other organisations talking about the outcomes of Black and Asian women and birthing people and how they weren't having, you know, adequate access to care, the experiences of Black nurses, for example, and auxiliaries Mm -hmm. working in the NHS and how they were working, but, you know, providing care for other people, but then couldn't receive the same kind of care themselves. So it's really just a new way of exploring um, the issues that we find within sexual reproductive health and saying, okay, we've been doing the same thing for quite some time now. We look at the most marginalised people and look at what their whole world looks like and kind of revisit how we do things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think reproductive justice coming from such a radical, politicised space speaks to all of those things that you were saying earlier about needing to see this as political, as something that is politicised as well. And 
and see it holistically. Because as you say, how do we think about reproduction in the context of police brutality? How do we think about reproduction and all of everything connected to the right to have children, to birth, when in so many ways, colonial legacies have meant that people can't, that they weren't allowed to. So what are the ways, I guess, that we can imagine justice and reproduction together? Um, so you, that was pretty fantastic to hear how you think about it in your work. And how do you see reproductive justice in your PhD? Is that a frame that you use? Um, is that shaping the kinds of questions that you're asking? Yeah, so I think I'm starting off very much um, with that kind of analysis and looking at what reproductive justice has meant initially when it started and obviously how that has transitioned, but then also how that work was ongoing in Britain, particularly, you know, in, in the 80s, mid 80s, mm -hmm. and how maybe we didn't have the language and the people at the time didn't use those words, but how we're kind of almost having the same conversations again, but finding mm -hmm. new language for it. So it definitely is a strong feature because I think there is now more of a galvanization, especially with social media, more access to the internet. There's more of a global galvanization around reproductive justice as a mm -hmm. as a global movement. And um, recently I went to Sierra Leone prior to um, all the kind of atrocities mm -hmm. and things that have kicked off recently um, mm -hmm. to be part of the African Sexual Health and Rights Conference there. And it was really nice to mm -hmm. interact with activists from across the across the world. There were lots of activists from Africa, but there was also people from, from the States, from uh, Central America and so forth. And it was nice mm -hmm. because we all started to use kind of similar language, but using it within our context right and understand mm -hmm. what our differences and our similarities are which I think previously it was harder to bring people together in that way though we had global conferences and global meetings it was hard to touch base as regularly and as frequently so um, mm -hmm. I'm also kind of looking at what what that means I guess um, in terms of us moving forward and also carving out our own understanding of reproductive justice um, in, in Britain, because before we were more isolated, we were using some of our own language, but now we have a global context, mm -hmm. but then we also have to make it specific to our own context once more, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. I think what you're saying is really how this is a global concern and this is something we are connected that there are similarities in how say the state wields power over reproduction or the kinds of barriers people encounter in trying to access reproductive health care um, and those can be quite specific contextually but in a broader sense that all of those these struggles are connected and the language as you say that people are beginning to use or the resurgence of certain kinds of language as we also see in the sort of resurgence of the effort to push back against this claiming is a global fight and that even we've got the particular but we've got the global at the same time you know that's really amazing and and important and I guess I want to pick up on this idea of this long history this long global set of legacies that we grapple with um, and this is something you've written about quite extensively when we're talking about colonialism we look at colonial origins and legacies of medicine of reproduction um, for example, you wrote this incredible piece recently for the Welcome Collection on the secret lives of Britain's first black physicians. And this is part of their eugenics and other stories collection. So how do you grapple with some of these legacies 
in reproduction work and SRH work as a doctor within some of these institutions that are shaped by these legacies. Yeah, so thank you for um, bringing up that article. And I actually decided to write about something quite different to what I usually write about, which is the links between all I talk about and I lecture on so eugenics and family planning and how that shapes my own work. Whereas I chose to focus on the story of kind of Africanus Haunton, who's one of the earliest kind of documented Black British physicians and how some of his own legacy was toiling with his identity within empire, but then also really celebrating empire as, you know, being educated in colonial institutions and being named by colonialists, but then also trying to develop a West African vision that he saw as an independent West Africa and how we don't really talk about those individuals and, you know, how they were in their own work kind of struggling with their identity already and all those things. So I took a different angle, but not a different angle, but I looked at a kind of different subject who I, I traditionally look at. Um, but I think it's really important to look back. And a lot of people, you know, kind of say, I guess, people that, you know, think looking at these things and talk about decolonization almost as a waste of time. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, you know, looking back, um, we need to move forward. And these, the past is the past. <laughs> and we need to move on now and just forge ahead and all of these, by- let bygones mm-hmm. be bygones <laughs> and, and things like that. And it, it's just really, um, it's just it's really ridiculous, isn't it? Because if we look mm-hmm. all around us and we're, we're, we're recording this now post the Queen passing away mm-hmm. and after the funeral, and everything that went on there all the pomp and celebration and ceremony they're all vestiges of history and it's like okay well we're okay with this aspect Mm -hmm. of history but we really don't want to deal with this ugly history that is clearly Mm -hmm. imprinting on everybody around us still um and I think the way in my work or um what I started off doing, even just as my own journey before I started decolonizing contraception and learning, was looking at these things because I'm really committed to the ideas. First of all, I can't really understand the context of what I'm in fully unless I understand how mm-hmm. we got here. And you can say that in a very literal sense, right? Growing up, I had mm-hmm. very little understanding compared to young pe- some young people today that have better access to you know, TikTok videos and stuff mm-hmm. about yeah. why my family like migrated Mm -hmm. here and what it was to be a British Nigerian person I really had very little understanding of that context the understanding of empire you know Mm -hmm. colonization any of that it really was lost on me to be honest until I was about 20 and it's very very difficult I think to understand dynamics between even something as simple as like why there are so many people from former Commonwealth countries working and propping up our NHS, for example, right? And what that means for our healthcare system and healthcare systems elsewhere. You need to have the full context of the picture. It also is really important to understand kind of what's happened historically so you don't repeat mistakes and issues of the past. So using the example kind of sexual reproductive health and contraception, the early what was called family planning movement very much ties to kind of Christian principles mm-hmm. of a family unit, which obviously was quite a key thing in terms of colonialism and colonization, saying, you know, these other cultures, heathen people don't have one man, one woman, they're polygamous or whatever. That's not the right thing to do. Um, We have to make these people kind of like us because that's like the moral thing to do. And that was like the moral virtue in kind of family planning, as well as later on proponents of the family planning movement like Mary Mm -hmm. Stopes 
realizing that actually using devices that can stop people getting you know, pregnant can also be used to quote unquote improve society. So eugenics, the basis of kind of breeding a better society by stopping the Mm -hmm. inferior classes reproducing. So she gets into bed with all these eugenicists and gets a lot of funding Mm -hmm. from all these eugenicists and makes a family planning clinic and is writing quite ardently about, you know, getting rid of like disabled people and people that are mentally ill and all of this kind of stuff and we can't really understand how we interact with contraception or people's resistance to contraception or um, Mm -hmm. any of that without having that full context and for a really long time you know I would say only within the last kind of 10 year period have those conversations really people really happy to have them in in medical spaces in policy spaces before it was kind of just like oh yeah that thing happened but we've buried it far away um Mm -hmm. and it's not going to happen again and as we see these things cycles do repeat themselves right we see this Mm -hmm. slow creep into the contraception and sexual reproductive health sector of people that are very much vested in uh, natalist policies they want to see their the face of their country stay the same they're worried about migration or they're worried about conservation issues and they Mm -hmm. think that the the climate is eroding so they're like okay how can we stop more people producing rather than look at wider issues I'm going to go and insert myself into this sector when actually they have no interest in autonomy Mm -hmm. or the other aspects of sexual reproductive health care they're just really really committed to the better Mm -hmm. breeding or the reduced breeding of certain people or people Mm -hmm. in general and so I think these things clearly do repeat themselves the interest that people had before people will have again you know Mm -hmm. and if you don't know it's very difficult to understand where that's all come from yeah, absolutely. I think you draw this incredible line from, like, to me, in many ways, a really linear path from a lot of the really obvious eugenics of these are, as you say, the people that we want, whose reproduction we value, whose bodies are valued, and these are who we don't want. And we can see that, I think, in a more sophisticated sense, in some of the, the rhetoric around overpopulation, as you say, in relation to the climate catastrophe, is who gets targeted for those control the population for the environment. That's very much the global south. That's very much black and brown bodies, unlike, say, in countries in the global north, where there's been very much a pronatalist push to increase these low fertility rates at the same time. Um, And we see how these logics of population, these logics of eugenics really still permeate much of this drive of, well, it's voluntary family planning that we're offering, right? And I think in these institutions, in essence, like you're really pointing out how eugenics has become so, these histories and these colonial logics remain so tied to what we take for granted today or what we take as red. Um, and I'd like to talk about some of the work that you did recently, um, I say recently, like last year, on the 3D speculum project. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Why the speculum? What does it mean for gynecology? What are its histories? Yes, 
thank you for bringing that one up as well. I, sometimes I'm like, I've done so many different things that I sometimes forget about different projects. But this project was so important mm-hmm. and it was essentially a researcher at the Victorian Albert Museum who was looking at attempts to remake and remodel the speculum as we know it because the design that we have for the speculum is you know it hasn't really been revised for you know 100 years or something and the the one that people often know is J. Marion Sims who was kind of known as the forefather of gynecology and there's been increasingly a lot more books written about his legacy because we know that he did a lot of slave experiments on plantations in the US and there's increasingly I think it's called Medical Bondage is a really good book Mm. by African-American historian that really explores his legacy because very conventionally it's framed as him experimenting on slaves and not really seen any contribution that um, these women made that actually um, delving into some of his papers and things that he's written it seems like they actually were doing quite complicated assisting and they were having to assist Mm -hmm. him on operating on each other which changes Mm -hmm. kind of our dynamic and understanding of the kind of earlier knowledge of gynecology and generating that information and he created one of the speculums the sim speculum it's not usually the beak one that you Mm -hmm. see when you have a smear or most commonly it's one used in theatre but the legacy of the speculum is very much tainted in some of this earlier oppressive history of gynecology and collective gyne punk um, set out to kind of do something radical and make a speculum or reinvent the speculum in a way and thinking about whether Mm -hmm. it could be more of a handheld device rather one that was just aimed at medical professionals utilizing Mm -hmm. and how having some of that autonomy may change the dynamic in kind of gynecology consultations but also not even in gynecology consultations but even allow people to maybe do things like look at themselves and inspect themselves and that in itself is very fundamental to reproductive justice I think one Mm -hmm. of the clear examples is um, movements in reproductive justice to say well actually long-acting reversible contraception um, Mm -hmm. although it's very effective once a health professional puts it in like an implant or an IUC an intrauterine contraceptive device the patient then doesn't have the autonomy or the understanding Mm -hmm. to remove that and then that places them at the disposal of medical professionals and the state right if they're using that for other means so I think the project was raising all of these conversations through the 3D speculum saying what does it look like for gynecology as a discipline to be more patient focused for patients Mm -hmm. to examine themselves recently in the news we saw you know discussion about self-taken smears which Mm -hmm. actually isn't a proper smear it's like a HPV test but it's now giving patients more of that autonomy to kind of test themselves in sexual health we've got self-screening people do swabs themselves and then they send their results back so they don't have to have that internet examination so that project was very much about exploring the history of individuals like Sims and Mm -hmm. providing a fuller context but also saying their legacy of obviously doing their experiments on people that were oppressed and enslaved mm-hmm. means that it's always been something really happening to people. But now we have the means to actually 
say to fully autonomous people, you can do a bit of this yourself. So yeah, it was a, it was a great project. We had lots of um, roundtables with people working across the sector, doctors, activists, people working in the charitable sector, and yeah, it was really it was really nice. And I think it also shows how museums like the Victorian Albert Museum, who have their own kind of colonial legacy, can mm-hmm. actually feed in to taking a, a renewed approach and mm-hmm. thinking about how we reshape those systems. And obviously, you know, there's much more radical work to be done in those spaces, but um, it, it was a starting point. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, as you say, we don't know where we are if we don't know how we've gotten here. And I think that really points to this sort of recontextualizing what we know by picking up on all that's hidden or made invisible like these histories, um, maybe something people are ashamed of or don't want to live up to or grapple with. But shining a light on that becomes so much more important to understand how people relate to and experience the healthcare system or, or their healthcare seeking and how these, coming back to what you said at the very beginning, how these are really holistic approaches to thinking about patient experiences or the experiences of people trying to access care. So thinking about how these histories are not just, you know, in these big global things, they're also very personal and affecting people's experiences, how they come to be here in this particular moment or or doing the work that they do. So we're tied to our grandparents, our great-grandparents and so on, particularly in this history of migration, as you talked about before. And you've written about your great-great-grandfather in Galdem, Dr. John Randall, who was one of the first West African graduates of medicine in the UK. And how do these personal legacies of yours, how do they shape you, your PhD work, your activism? How do you grapple with this? Thank you so much for bringing that topic up, because it's something for me that is really, really important at the moment. So unfortunately, my grandma passed away at the end of June and we were really, really close. And she used to tell me little bits about my family history growing up and, you know, always tried to be like, you should be proud of like this and just your your family Mm -hmm. in general. But I didn't have the full context and as parents and grandparents Mm -hmm. can be, especially when they've had maybe negative experiences, they can be a little bit stoic Mm. about telling you the full history. And so when I had the tools, when I got older and did my own research and I'd say, Mm -hmm. oh, I found out this and you didn't tell me this and she would open up a bit more. So when I wrote that article about my great, great grandfather, really, it was just a culmination of lots of discussions with herself and also an opportunity. I wrote it as part of the Gelnam 2020. Mm -hmm. It was June Black History Month. And it was an opportunity to, you know, encourage other people, particularly Gelnam, younger kind of adults to go and explore their own history, have those conversations with their grandparents, too, about their own kind of legacy and often as 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 a migrant um you're often made to think that anything that happened to you kind of before or several years before you got to Britain is like no longer really important and sometimes with broken families or families kind of spread across continents it can be so hard to get that information and people just Mm -hmm. you know don't have the energy and you know don't know how to start But I think this is so important. I've already talked about how I think history is so important Mm -hmm. in understanding the context that we live in today. And I do think if you have access to that information or you can, even, you know, if you're adopted, I do think for some people it explains a lot about their own sometimes family dynamics. Sometimes it helps them understand a bit more about themselves um, and things like that. So, you know, I I think it is really, really important. And as I mentioned, you know, 
growing up and going through the educational system in the UK, I didn't really at that time in the 90s, 2000s, the understanding relationship between Britain and its colonies and then the Commonwealth really wasn't discussed at all. Some of this is changing. But, you know, delving into my own family's history was a lot of self-education as well about that dynamic. So my great grandfather, as you mentioned, Dr. John Randall, came to the UK, particularly Edinburgh University, graduating in 1888 and studied medicine and then went off to be a colonial physician. And, you know, what does that mean in terms of empire? There's always been kind of an African Mm -hmm. elite which, you know, that's often not really discussed for some people, well understood. You know, there was always in Nigeria, India, an elite group of people Mm -hmm. that enabled British colonial rule and supported that, but maybe didn't have the same rights and access to the clubs and things that they Mm -hmm. did, but were quite happy occupying that space and discussing their role in all of this and their legacies and where their descendants are today. I think it's really, really Mm -hmm. important in understanding the system that is still kind of being perpetuated Mm -hmm. and the structures that we still have. So for me, it was an opportunity for some reflection, understanding, you know, my own family's history and people who partook in that, that history. And then also, you know, reflecting on some of what he went on to do. So he founded the People's Union of Nigeria. Um, Some of the history shows me that I think he realised that he couldn't ascend with it as a a colonial Mm -hmm. physician because of his race and then departed from the army and went off to other things. Or so some of the history I've read says. So, you know, just looking at all of that and then looking on, you know, my own journey and what I've shown interest in, for me, was partly just fascination, but also just, you know, oh, wow things do just really repeat themselves. (laughs) And, you know, how do we kind of progress from here? How do we encourage people to go and look at these things? So when they, people tell them untruths, they also have facts to be like, I know that's not true. I've done my own reading. I know about my family's history. And yeah, that's just, that's not correct. I think history simplified a lot and it's not simple. No, no, it certainly isn't. I think from their story of unearthing of your great-great-grandfather's journey and experiences, I think you could perhaps see a lot of that sort of learning, as you say, when you sit with how do we come to be here and we ask those questions and then how do we learn and grow and shift and we come up in some ways with a form of resistance. I think we see that in you with the sort of resistance and the activism work that you do as well. Um, How do you see then, thinking from the past to the future, what does that look like? What does that look like for reproductive justice in the UK, globally? What does that look like for healthcare and decolonizing it, again, in the UK, more globally? What do you imagine for this? So one thing that I've noticed happening and I think is really imperative to getting the system that I think is more equitable and works for more people, us having more autonomy. Reproductive justice seems to, not just on its own, but it's maybe a sign of the times, there's a bridging of the gap between clinicians, researchers, activists, in a way that previously there was not this level of discussion and collectivism. And that's part of what decolonizing contraception was about. Mm-hmm. It was about bridging these gaps. But 
you know, it's happening start globally and in lots of different spaces. And I think that in itself is transformative to the sector because everything was so slow before. It was like doctors would decide, you know, that this policy mm-hmm. was really good and it was just being imprinted upon people. And it would take a very long time for grassroots activists at the bottom to have their voices heard. And we still have problems with this. And, you know, there's still a lot of silencing. But I think we are seeing much more bridging of these gaps in real time Mm -hmm. and more quickly and people listening to each other and, Mm -hmm. you know, forming partnerships and working on projects together. And I think that's also because medicine is starting to not completely and different areas and specialties Mm -hmm. of medicine are completely different, right? But first of all, I do think it's become more inclusive Mm -hmm. in terms of not wanting to be this separate entity from other people and just enacting things on people. There's been a a, a shift over time from paternalistic medicine and it's still paternalistic in many ways, but it's definitely moved from what it was like, you know, in the 19th century and things where it was just like not speak to the patient, poke prod you, no one's going to say anything about what is actually wrong with you you whirled into operation, something happens, and then somebody's just like, oh, it's gone now, right? (laughs) And, you know, Hmm. we still get stories of really awful communication and bad things happening and all of that kind of thing. But lots of processes from, you know, medical litigation to medical schools teaching differently to having different people coming into medicine, all of these kinds of things have changed it quite profoundly. So some of these shifts, have enabled better interactions with loads of different other specialities and people. And I think that is transforming what reproductive Mm -hmm. health looks like. And I think some of that work is coming from reproductive justice and people kicking the door down and saying, actually, Mm -hmm. you can't afford to not talk to us about these things when you're in control of our bodies. And so I think some of what we will see over the next, I hope, 10 years is that going from speaking to really transformative practice so we will start to get clinics and programs that are actually more holistic we're going to have many more practitioners in a space that can meet the needs of the whole person which is what this is all about really like Mm -hmm. that is what we're trying to get to equity where we can meet the needs of multiple people different people and treat all the things that are making that person need care or be sick. But the big push against this, ultimately, um, whilst we're taking big steps, first of all, there are people fighting us to go back to how it was. Mm -hmm. And then there's also people fighting us to get further away from that, that are like, okay, Mm -hmm. we want to see people take more ownership just over their care. So Mm -hmm. the state takes a step back and everything's privately Mm -hmm. funded and you don't get any of the support that you need because actually you've made yourself sick. So As much Mm -hmm. as we are making progress, I think we also need to remember there's always forces that are trying to drag Mm -hmm. you back to where you were. And some people even trying to pull you in completely the opposite direction, right? It doesn't mean that we're not doing really great work. It's just that there are other forces working. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, and I think sometimes we look at things and we're like, well, why isn't the dial moving then? And it's like, Mm -hmm. well, there's people doing exactly what you're doing and they're pulling you in completely the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. Part of, I guess, the movement work is to remain incredibly vigilant of that while we continue to progress and continue to push forward and offer these new ways of imagining. Annabelle, you're adding another hat to your varied hat collection. 
you will soon be a author, a published author of a book that's just been acquired by Welcome Collection and Profile Books will be publishing it. I believe it's called Decolonizing Healthcare. Congratulations. And you say a little bit more about this, about your book and how you think this is going to contribute to these conversations that we're having at the moment. Yeah, so it's really, really exciting. Obviously, I've been a writer, journalist and things for some time and I edited School Magazine. And mm -hmm. so this is the culmination of so many years of just like loving writing. I'm releasing um, my first book in April next year. It's called Divided Racism, Medicine and Decolonizing Healthcare. I talk about lots of things we've mentioned, but I'm looking at healthcare as a whole or different aspects of healthcare that mm -hmm. have kind of piqued my interest. Can't look at everything because uh, I'd be <laughs> writing for the rest of my days. But it's really looking at some of this history I've mentioned, how it shaped the system we have today, from mental health to prison health to looking at medical education and some of the issues that I've encountered and really, again, looking at how we can transform aspects of the system and how we can have a system that works for people when actually mm -hmm. we know by design a lot of these areas were designed to be flawed at mm -hmm. the beginning so can we reshape reshift these things what does change look like and speaking to people that are at the forefront of that change incredible and I think it's going to really galvanize the conversation and really move us forward. And I think why hasn't the needle moved? And I think this is one of those books that will definitely have that needle move and move in that direction of transformation. Annabelle, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. Any last thoughts, any last comments you'd like to make? Thank you so much for speaking to me. Really appreciate it. Also really admire your work and everything that you're doing. I guess just, you know, as we transform to the Reproductive Justice Initiative, please check out what we're doing. We had a podcast called The Sex Agenda, which you can listen mm -hmm. to on most podcasting platforms. And uh, you can look at, you can also order our uh, zine on Etsy, The Sex Agenda Zine. We're always doing things as a collective and now as a charity. And I am also always looking for opportunities, particularly to teach young professionals as well as just speak to activists. I love sex education as well. Mm -hmm. We do quite a lot of that. So, yeah, that's it, really. And yeah, do have a read of my book when it comes out. We're really looking forward to all of the books that you will undoubtedly be putting out. All of those things, as you say, everything that we've talked about, everything that you've discussed. They could have been five different books by now and probably four different episodes for us to delve into everything that we really wanted to. Dr. Annabelle Showamino, whose incredible work you can follow along, not just her PhD journey here at Global Health and Social Medicine, but also with her work with the Reproductive Justice Initiative, all of the incredible work that they're doing over there. Amazing. I'm looking forward to this transformation of what it means to care within the healthcare system. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the World We Got This In Conversation podcast with Dr. Annabelle Shoamimo and Dr. Rashita Nandagiri. You can find out more about Annabelle's work on the King's website or by following Annabelle on Twitter at SoShoamimo. This episode is brought to you by the School of Global Affairs and was produced by Julia Stampovska and Grace Harley. You have been listening to The World We Got This podcast. This episode was produced by the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy at King's College London 
and edited by Rachel Wall. To find out more about the research at King's on this and other global challenges, please visit our website, kcl.ac.uk. Please review, subscribe and share the podcast so you don't miss an episode and it's easier for others to find out about the series.